Welcome to the Journal Editorial Report. I'm Paul Gigo. As Hurricane Ian continues to wreak havoc in the southeastern United States, the true scope of the devastation in Florida is coming into focus as the death toll rises amid widespread destruction and catastrophic flooding across much of the state. The Biden administration Thursday promising the full support of the federal government as the storm and its aftermath pose a critical leadership test for both the president and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Let's bring in Wall Street Journal columnist and Fox News contributor Carl Rove, who served in the Bush White House during Hurricane Katrina. Welcome, Carl. Uh, nice to see you. So uh, uh, what do voters expect from governors and presidents, particularly governors here, when you have a, a natural disaster like this? Well, they expect the governor to be in charge and to have mobilized both um, uh, local governments, uh, state government, and private uh, institutions to uh, uh, mediate, remediate the, the immediate aftermath and to be able to help people get back on their feet. This is, this is a test, if you will, of frontline leadership uh, of, of a governor. And, uh, and also, in some instances, uh, the mayors of big cities have a big role to play. But the governor is the lead. Federal government basically writes checks. Uh, unless the local government and the state government utterly collapse, as they did in Katrina, and the federal government has to nationalize the event, in essence. But, but uh, Florida has a strong tradition of, uh, of governors uh, rising up and meeting these challenges. They have one of the best emergency management systems in the country. Uh, Governor of Florida needs to, needs to know how to deal with this because, they, they like it or not, hurricanes are coming virtually every year. Right. So it's a matter of pre-planning, uh, but also then right. two or three weeks afterwards, how well does the uh, does the recovery effort go? I guess that'll be a crucial test here. Absolutely. And how do you mobilize additional resources if you run into into uh, difficulties in certain areas? And how do you make certain that everybody's talking to everybody? And uh, they've got some big challenges there. I mean, uh, wiped out the causeway connecting the mainland to Sanibel Island, large amounts of of the electric, uh, the electrical grid, uh, Florida Power and Light said in advance, some of them are going to be wiped out and going to have to be not repaired but rebuilt, and that's going to be a problem. But uh, DeSantis, as I say, has been thinking about this, as every governor of Florida does, and it seems to me from watching him on his briefings, has a, is really into the detail, which is what a governor needs to be at this time. All right. To Carl, let's move to the election. Uh, polls, some polls seem to be showing some movement towards the Republicans at least in some of the battleground states. And you came out this week, wrote in our paper, that uh, the House Republicans will retake the House probably with 20, 25 seats. I think that number, though, would be a disappointment for a lot of Republicans uh, be, who have been hoping for more. Why, uh, why did you settle on that number? Well, because, uh, first of all, the average since, you know, since 1934 is 28 seats in a midterm. Uh, but the Republicans did something unusual in 2020. They lose the White House, but they picked up 14 seats in the House of Representatives. So there are 213. If they got 20 seats, let's say that's on the low end, they get 20 seats, there are 233. That is more than they had when Newt Gingrich was sworn in as Speaker in January of 1995. So, the, the, yes, it's a lower number than it's under the average, but it's under the average because they did something above the average in 2020, which is they lose the White House but pick up seats. So, uh, I mean, how, how concerned should Republicans be that it could be under that? Or do you see it actually the, the odds are more likely that it would be over your estimate as the trend is currently going? 
Yeah. Well, look, the, the key there is going to be candidate quality because the underlying firmament of this election is pretty darn good. Let's take a look at two different polls. ABC asked, what do you think is the most important issue? The most important. So you had to pick one. 26% said the economy. 21% said inflation. 14% said crime. That's 65% of the voters. That's the Republican agenda. 22% said abortion, and 13% said climate. That's 35%. That's the Democratic agenda. And then look at the NBC. NBC said, who would do a better job in the economy? Republicans, 47, Democrats, 28. That's the biggest margin since that question was asked for the first time in 1991. Crime, 45, 22. Border security, 56, 20. The, the crime number is the best number for, for either party since that question started to be asked in 1993. Now, they haven't wow. been asking the border security question very long since last October. But again, the biggest advantage. So the underlying firmament is is good. The question is, do we have candidates like J.R. Majewski in suburban uh, you know, Cleveland and Toledo, who, who turns out to have been lying about his military record? He ain't going to win now. And that was a seat that the Republicans could have picked up. So the candidate quality and the quality of the campaigns and the quality of their get-out-to-vote operations becomes very critical here in the last stages. But the firmament is very good for Republicans. I know that uh, you promised uh, readers that you'd come out with your Senate prediction next week. You don't have to give away the game uh, for, for, our, for the Wall Street Journal readers, but give us an indication. I, are the, poll, the polls seem to be moving in several states in the Republican direction there, too. Yeah, absolutely. Both the top line number and more importantly, uh, the underlying movement on the favorables and unfavorables of Democratic candidates like Fetterman in Pennsylvania and Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. Look, I, 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 I'm dubious of the head to head numbers in polling. Polling is broken. But so I'm looking at uh, what is happening in, in terms of the movement. What is the general movement on the ballot? But more importantly, what are the internals looking like in terms of what are the people, uh, the voters prioritizing and how are they seeing the candidates? I'm going to be talking in the in uh, in the uh, piece next week also about the swing. What we've left out of this is is we're in a midterm election. So the midterms move against the presidential party. How much do they generally move? I'm going to be talking about that because think about this. The Democrats are defending seats in states like Georgia and Arizona and Nevada, where a swing of 2.4 percent from what the vote total was in 2024 would turn those states into Republican states. In fact, in Arizona and Georgia, if there was a movement towards the Republicans and away from the Democrats of less than 1%, it could flip those seats. So I'm going to be talking about that in the piece as well. And, and that's a movement from 2020, 2.4% 2, 2 from, from 2020. 2020. Yes. Yeah, 2020. Right. Okay. Right. Well, fascinating, Carl. We'll look forward to that. Thanks so much for uh, coming in. When we come back, yeah, new Paul. Fox poll shows a shift in some key Senate races with Republican candidates gaining on their Democratic opponents. Plus, the fate of Trump-backed candidates in some battleground states. Hi, I'm attorney. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. With 38 days to go until the midterm elections, new Fox poll shows some key Senate races tightening, with Republican candidates gaining on their Democratic opponents in two battleground states. In Pennsylvania, McMahon Oz has narrowed the gap with John Fetterman, who now leads by four points, down from an 11-point advantage in late July. 
And in Wisconsin, incumbent Senator Ron Johnson now leads Democratic opponent Mandela Barnes 48 to 44 percent. Johnson trailed Barnes by four points last month. Let's bring in our panel, Wall Street Journal columnist Dan Henninger and Kim Strassel and editorial board member Kyle Peterson. So, Kim, uh, are you uh, seeing more broadly this movement uh, toward the Republicans in the polls and uh, what's behind it? I think you are seeing it more broadly and you're seeing it both in the House and in the Senate. And I think it's the post-Labor Day uh, focus by voters, again, on core issues. If you look, for instance, at Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, uh, both of those candidates, Ron Johnson and Metman Oz on the Republican side, are talking very much on the economy, inflation, but also an issue that's really resurfacing is crime. Um, they're really beating up their opponents on it. I think what has also helped them in those states is having candidates that are very much part of the progressive left, and it's been easier to pick up some of their past policies and, and show them to be a little bit of out of step with a lot of mainstream voters. Yeah, Kyle, I was in Wisconsin this weekend, and uh, the Johnson's ads are really hitting uh, Mandela Barnes on crime and on some of his previous statements on, on uh, what he would do with police, on bail reform, on ICE, how he would handle the, the immigration. And even though Mandela Barnes is trying to say, well, look, that's an, uh, really not ex what I believe, some of his past statements uh, give Johnson the evidence to do that. Right. And I think these are the kinds of things, to Kim's point, that voters are just kind of tuning into. A lot of the coverage so far, especially nationally, has been sort of campaign ephemera. So to go to Pennsylvania, you know, the, the zingy tweet from John Fetterman about whether Mehmet Oz really actually lives in New Jersey. Uh, but now that we are past Labor Day, I think that voters are starting to tune into these real issues. If you live in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, you're starting to actually dig a little deeper into the details. And it's, whoa, you know, what really would John Fetterman vote to uh, pass a Medicare for all plan and make my private health insurance illegal? Or what did Mandel Barnes actually say a couple of years ago about defunding the police? And I think that dynamic will only continue, especially as some of the candidate debates start happening here in, in uh, you know, coming days and weeks. Uh, Dan, one of the things that's interesting is the lead opened up by Brian Kemp, the incumbent uh, Republican uh, governor of uh, Georgia against Stacey Abrams, of course, a favorite of progressives, who he defeated very narrow, very narrowly in 2018, has now opened up a much wider lead. Uh, is this uh, uh, the, a bit of a payback by voters for her refusal to accept that she was defeated for so many years? I think that has a lot to do with it, certainly. Uh, it has as well to do with um, the issues, shall we say. Uh, Brian Kemp has been, uh, the politics aside, the Trump recount aside, he's been a successful governor in Georgia. The state of Georgia is doing very well. And, you know, one of the things we have to point out here, this is a midterm election. In a presidential election, Normally, the presidential candidates define the issues for the entire election. What they're talking about is what people are thinking about. There's nothing like that now. So we end up defaulting to what is in front of people's faces. What are the real issues out there? And obviously, the biggest one is inflation and the state of the economy. It's a little hard to hide from that. Uh, Democrats like Stacey Abrams uh, or John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, uh, they have nothing to fall back on other than uh, what the Senate had Democrats and Joe Biden did. And there's only one spokesman for that, basically, which is President Biden himself, who is not popular. 
So in some of these races, like in Georgia or in Pennsylvania or in Arizona, Democrats have created, not created so much, but fallen back on one issue, which is abortion, the Dobbs Supreme Court decision. They're not talking about inflation. They're talking about abortion. And, Paul, it's beginning to look as though that is not really moving a lot of undecided voters in places like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. So, uh, Kim, a couple of states, uh, races Republicans aren't doing as well. One is the Arizona Senate race, where Blake Masters is trailing Mark Kelly substantially. And then in the Georgia Senate race, where uh, Herschel Walker is challenging Raphael Warnock, the current senator, uh, he's also that's very close, but he's also seems to be trailing a bit. What's uh, uh, what's the drag there for Republicans? The candidates. Um, you know, Blake Masters came out of a very bruising primary with a lot of really high negatives, and he has struggled to uh, tone those down and, and really make a connection with voters, even as his opponent, Mark Kelly, is pretty popular in the state and has cast himself, I think, incorrectly, but as a moderate, um, and that's really coming through. And then over in Georgia, uh, Herschel Walker has been dogged by all of these, just getting pounded by Democrats on these domestic abuse allegations and a kind of checkered past on the home front. Um, his opponent, Raphael Warnock, is is not necessarily the most like lovable guy, um, but uh, the comparison there is clearly working its will through the voters, and they're having a hard time accepting Herschel Walker. And all it is, Paul, too, it, it goes to show it's one thing to get a Trump endorsement. It's another thing to run a, one, run a statewide race, especially in a swing state. Quickly, uh, Kim, uh, those candidates were endorsed by Donald Trump, helped them win. Uh, is Trump spending any money on their behalf? He's got tens of millions that he's raised. Not a dime. And that is one of the big questions is why not and will he? All right. When we come back, the first lawsuits are filed to block the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness as uh, CBO puts a $420 billion price tag on the plan. Attention, Medicare recent. Six Republican-led states sued the Biden administration Thursday in an effort to block its student loan forgiveness plan, accusing the president of overstepping his executive powers. It was the second legal challenge this week to the administration's sweeping proposal to cancel up to $20,000 in debt for millions of Americans. On Tuesday, a student loan borrower and public interest attorney in Indiana filed a separate lawsuit claiming that he would be harmed by the loan cancellation which would stick him with a bigger tax bill in the state. Both lawsuits come as the Congressional Budget Office weighs in with its estimate of the cost of the student loan write-off, putting the price tag at $420 billion. And as the Biden administration scales back, relief for some borrowers. We're back with our panel, Dan Henninger, Kim Strassel, and Kyle Peterson. So, Dan, we should uh, uh, make clear that's $400 billion for the write-off, another $20 billion for extending the <laughs> loan repayment moratorium. Uh, for another three months. But how strong are these legal claims? Start with the state. Well, the state claim, let's, let's just posit that um, to make a claim in federal court, you have to establish that there is some damage or harm. You can't simply say it's going to cost you money. And so, <clears throat> yes, this uh, plaintiff in Indiana has said it isn't going to increase his uh, payment of state taxes and that he isn't going to incur damage with his loan processing, uh, which is, you know, at the center of what this loan forgiveness uh, program is about. It is about processing loans. So it looks as though they have a leg in to make a claim in federal court. Uh, then you've got the six 
uh, Republican-led states also filing a claim that it is going to do damage to their own loan processing in those states. And this was, I think, inevitable, Paul. Uh, the Biden administration is doing this extraordinary amount of debt cancellation on the argument that there was a COVID emergency and that the emergency affected all of these uh, borrowers, and therefore they are going to, under the terms of the emergency, provide them with relief. Boy, that's a kind of a weak read to, to hang uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of debt relief on. So I think this is going to go to court for a while now, raising the question of what's going to happen to uh, all of these debt cancellations that are being submitted to the federal government. Kyle, something extraordinary happened after the states filed their lawsuit, which is that the administration suddenly pared back its debt forgiveness for certain borrowers who would be uh, uh, working through these state uh, service uh, companies. Uh, that sounds like a tacit admission that they think what they did was illegal because suddenly they might lose that case. I mean, is that how you read it? That is exactly how I read it. I mean, this was a certain category of uh, private loans that were originally supposed to be covered, and they took them out of the program because they were worried that the private loan companies would sue. And I, I read that exactly as an admission that they know that they have overstepped their power here, and they're trying to game the legal system, uh, so to speak, with the standing issue, because if they can argue successfully in court that there's nobody who has a concrete injury, they can get away with this. The other lawsuit that is, is interesting and fun to think about is if Republicans take back the House in November, they might be able to bring a lawsuit on behalf of the House of Representatives, arguing that the executive branch here has, uh, has impeded on Congress's power of the purse. Uh, the problem with that theory is I think the Biden administration wants to get this done pretty quickly. And so they know they have a November or a, a January when the handover takes place deadline to get the forgiveness out the door. But at the very least, it's something that I think Republican candidates ought to be talking about and promising to do, because I think there are a lot of voters that are riled up by this. Uh, uh, the, no question a lot of voters are riled up. And Kim, the Indiana plaintiff, uh, this fellow who says, look, you're going to raise my tax bill because Indiana taxes uh, uh, loan forgiveness. Not every state does. Indiana does. So and, and he's and he's basically his claim is, yeah, he'd get the forgiveness, but he would have gotten it anyway because he's participating in one of these other programs that the federal government has that allows you to pay for a certain amount of time, and as long as you're current, then have that loan end. Uh, how powerful do you think his case is? Well, uh, as you said, under the program he is now, if he did nothing uh, over the years, this money would eventually all be written off, and he would face no tax bill. Uh, now, and he has no choice, because uh, given that he is enrolled in the program he is, he will automatically be signed up for Biden's loan cancellation. So no matter what he does, this money will be written off, and he'll be hit with this Indiana tax bill, which he wouldn't have otherwise. I think that is a very strong claim in court, because it's almost the exact definition of an injury, something bad happening to you that would not happen otherwise were it not for an administrative action. And it allows him in that lawsuit to bring up all the many ways in which the administration violated uh, things like the Administrative Procedures Act um, and didn't do any formal rulemaking and didn't do any of the steps it was supposed to do. Um, so what you need is the hook to get in there. And as hooks go, this one's pretty good. 
Dan, uh, uh, about 30 seconds, that uh, price tag, $400 billion, just the president waves his hand and says, okay, that's, uh, we're going to forgive that, put that on the borrowers or on taxpayers. That's extraordinary, and that really brings this up to the, the issue of a major question uh, under the Supreme Court's major question doctrine that uh, the administ- executive branch has to leap over. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we did have that big Supreme Court decision last term, West Virginia versus EPA, which said that you have to cite an explicit reason for doing something like this. You just, as you suggested, cannot wave your hand and eliminate over $400 billion like this without Congress getting involved. Yeah, explicit statutory permission from Congress. When we come back, the Supreme Court justices set to return to the bench on Monday in what is shaping up to be another big term. From racial preferences to immigration, we'll preview the cases to watch next. Once upon a time. The Supreme Court set to begin its fall term on Monday, the first for Justice Katanji Brown Jackson on the docket. A host of high-profile cases, including racial preferences, election law, and immigration policy issues that are sure to further fuel the assault in some quarters on the court and its credibility. Here with a look at the cases to watch is Ilya Shapiro. He's a senior fellow and director of constitutional studies at the Manhattan Institute and author of the book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Ilya, welcome. I want to read you a headline from the Washington Post news report this week by one Robert Barnes. It says, Supreme Court, dogged by questions of legitimacy, is ready to resume. That's a news report. Uh, now, what does it mean, dogged by legitimacy? Is, is there some dysfunction at the court or is this something else? Well, as you said, Paul, this is reporters generating their own news. Uh, a lot of uh, so-called news analysis questioning legitimacy because of case decisions uh, the observers don't like. Uh, John Roberts, the chief justice himself, said that just because you don't like a case, that shouldn't throw uh, the court's legitimacy in doubt, although his colleague Elena Kagan uh, threw shade on him effectively and, and said that the court uh, was becoming too political and making decisions not based on the law. Then Justice Alito replied to her. I mean, it's become some sort of food fight, uh, but really it's all among elites. Uh, the man on the street, uh, the woman on the street, uh, they look at the Supreme Court. They, they determine whether they like or dislike a particular case or the, the top handful of cases every June, and they make their decisions. That's what the Gallup polling uh, reflects. And now there's a, a huge uh, disparity between uh, how conservatives or Republicans and liberals or Democrats are viewing the court. Uh, but the, the, you know, I don't think these questions of legitimacy really are, are anything that uh, we we actually do need to be concerned about it's uh, it, the court's doing its best to decide the cases that are uh, in front of it and if you don't like that analysis that's perfectly fine uh, but I don't think it means the court is uh, an institutional failure. But do you think that uh, Justice Kagan and some of these uh, commentators their goal is to uh, try to intimidate the justices not to uh, uh, go in the so-called conservative direction on some of these uh, political uh, hot button cases? There might be some of that, certainly. It's also frustration, I'm sure. Um, you know, John Roberts, who's shown to be the one who uh, can be affected by that kind of uh, pressure, perhaps, is no longer the man in the middle. It's, it's Brett Kavanaugh. 
Uh, and of course, maybe if that was the cause of the leak, maybe we'll find out next week when the term starts that the uh, something more about the leak investigation. But uh, when the leak happened, if that was meant to shift some justices, that did not work uh, with Dobbs, the abortion case. Uh, so you know, I think I think it's just expressions of frustration and and. Uh, um, you know, the, the, the political tide turned as it had and the, 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 the hinges of, of time, uh, uh, you could say. And, uh, you know, things will, will work themselves out. I don't think we have anything to worry about in the, in the medium to long term. Yeah, I know. I certainly have disagreed with a lot of court cases over the years, but I never said, oh, boy, the court is illegitimate. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the court docket this year and start with that first case, first day. Big uh, administrative law case, property rights case, EPA versus Sackett. What's at stake there? I mean, this litigation has been going on for over a decade. In fact, the court decided the Sackett case unanimously a decade ago, allowing this uh, couple who owns property in Idaho uh, near a lake uh, to challenge a potential EPA enforcement action to prevent them from building their home uh, under threat of, uh, I think it was $75,000 in daily fines. So they were allowed to go to court to challenge that. Well, they've been in court for a decade. And so now it's on the merits of the issue of whether uh, there's federal jurisdiction uh, over so-called waters of the United States, whether they're navigable. I mean, it's some technicalities, but really this is going to be cleaning up a case from almost 20 years ago where Justice Kennedy, as the swing vote, devised kind of a a test for determining this that has caused a lot of confusion the lower courts. So this, I think, will uh, clarify things and will be a boon for homeowners and, and property developers who are nowhere near navigable waters. Sackets are likely to win this one, I would suspect. All right. The biggest case politically is the one on racial preferences in education at Harvard and North Carolina uh, being challenged as uh, that policy for being biased against Asian Americans. Uh, how do you see that one going? Well, uh, the the theme last term, you know, there was some alarmism about overturning the civil rights wins of the 60s in the Warren Court. What's really, I think, going on now at the court is they're overturning the the gaudy legal wallpaper of the 70s, the Burger Court, not the Warren Court. And so this is another example, a precedent from 1978, the Bakke case involving racial quotas at UC Davis uh, Medical School. And one justice at that time, Justice Powell, uh, said that you can use race as one of many factors uh, in the interest of educational diversity. And on that one vote, our whole modern edifice of affirmative action and DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, bureaucracies at in higher education was built. Uh, It's become unworkable. Uh, Harvard and UNC both clearly, uh, uh, the way the statistics work and the the racial balancing over time, are using race as determinative factors, are downgrading Asian Americans. And, you know, it's it's as as John Roberts said in his rookie year on the court more than 15 years ago, it's a sordid business, this divvying us up by race. So I think almost certainly Harvard and UNC will both win. I don't think it's going to be a a different result. They separated the cases so the new Justice Jackson could... uh, uh, participate in the UNC case. She was on the Harvard Board of Overseers and so was recused there. But I think this is another 70s precedent that is definitely threatened. Uh, and whether it will be possible to use race in any context in higher education is very much in doubt. I think we'll see massive resistance to such a ruling, of course, from the uh, higher education institution. Just to follow up on that, you think uh, briefly, uh, you think that the, the, the schools will try to use race anyway? 
I think they'll find pretextual ways of, of doing it. And find, in fact, Michigan and California filed briefs saying, despite our voters prohibiting use of race, here's how we've done it successfully. So that's going to be a messy political battle. All right, Elia Shapiro, thanks so much. Uh, still ahead, faced with a threat of a shutdown, Joe Manchin is forced to pull his energy permitting plan from the government funding bill, dealing a blow to the West Virginia senator's top legislative priority. So who's to blame for the bill's failure? And can it make a comeback? With a shutdown looming, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin was forced this week to pull his permitting reform proposal from the short-term government funding bill, abandoning, at least for now, a vote on his top legislative priority, which was part of the deal he cut with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in exchange for backing the Inflation Reduction Act. Schumer blaming Republicans for the setback, but vowing to pass the bill before the end of the year. Senate Republicans have made very clear they will block legislation to fund the government if it includes bipartisan permitting reform. They've chosen to obstruct instead of work in a bipartisan way to achieve something they've long claimed they wanted to do. Senator Manchin, myself and others will continue to have conversations about the best way to ensure responsible permitting reform is passed before the end of the year. We're back with our panel, Dan Henninger, Kim Strassel, and Kyle Peterson. So, Kyle, I think Joe Manchin had uh, thought he'd get the votes of enough Republicans to break a filibuster, but he didn't. Uh, why did Republicans oppose this in the end? Well, I think that Manchin has only himself to blame, and I would point to a few things. One is the sequencing here. So originally Manchin said he was going to block a big reconciliation spending package, and then he changed his mind conveniently right after Republicans voted for this big billion-dollar computer chips bill. So many Republicans felt misled there. Uh, at the same time, while voting for the reconciliation package, he gave up his leverage, and so he ended up with a permitting reform bill that is really weaker than Republicans wanted and probably weaker than Manchin really wants personally as well. Uh, and then number three, he negotiated in secret for more than a month. And so Republicans decided they were going to write their own permitting bill and put on the record what they actually think needs to be done to help the country. And so now we're sitting here looking at the election, and I think Republicans reasonably think that they have a good chance to take Congress, and maybe they can get a better deal later on. Kim, uh, what about the substance here? Because we do need permitting reform. I mean, we can't build anything without, you know, taking five to ten years, as you can see in New York City for sure, but all around the country. So Manchin's right about that. But is there a real substantive objection that Republicans have that's important to what he negotiated? Yeah, there were several. Look, uh, Manchin included a lot of provisions in this that he said would speed things up. And yes, it had lots of language about putting a stop clock on how long the government can take to evaluate these permits. But what was fundamentally missing from this package was any enforcement mechanism. There was no way to require the government to actually stick to the things that were in there. And this was one of the Republican complaints. The other problem is there was a big poison pill in this bill in that it would have given the federal energy regulatory commission, uh, FERC, the ability to override states when it comes to the building of transmission wires, which is a big agenda for the left because they want to be able to connect renewables and force the middle of the country that doesn't have these lines running through it to subsidize all of these renewables that are being used in blue states. Um, this would have really changed the current situation and, and been very bad and, and caused more unreliability in the grid. Yeah, that's uh 
bill for those transmission lines, Kim, could be something by one estimate, $2.4 trillion to build that to do this. And the FERC proposal you talked about would allow FERC to socialize the costs of that away from states that have Correct. mandates for renewable energy to states that don't. And uh, that's a pretty, uh, you know, that, that would really raise costs in Ohio and other states. Dan, what do you think the prospects are that this gets revived in the lame duck session when the election is no longer a factor? I think the chances, Paul, are close to zero, because one of the things that came out when it started failing was just how inalterably opposed uh, Democrats are to doing something like this. I mean, there was a, a bill, there was a piece of this legislation that would have permitted the construction of something called the Mountain Valley Gas Pipeline, which would have benefited West Virginia. And both progressive Bernie Sanders and supposed moderate uh, Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia said they were inalterably opposed to allowing this natural gas pipeline to be built. You know, eventually we're going to have to take these Democrats at their word. Any piece of legislation that in any way enables fossil fuel production, they're going to oppose it. Uh, the legislation that they just did pass, which Joe Biden has been bragging about, uh, contains billions upon billions of subsidies for renewables, nothing for the production of fossil fuels. So I think the chances of any legislation going forward that Joe Manchin wants uh, to push along these lines, there will be pushback from Democrats in the Senate and the House. They aren't going to go there. Uh, Kyle, what do you think? Do you agree with that? I mean, I guess the question becomes if Republicans don't get the Senate again, they lose it, then maybe some of them might be more inclined to just accept at least some of this incremental uh, change, even if it's not uh, what they really want? Well, I think what they worry about is they worry that Congress will check the permitting reform box with a weak proposal that doesn't do what they actually want, doesn't save the country and doesn't allow this building to take place. And then who knows how long it will take Congress to get back to that issue. Uh, and so now we have this Republican bill introduced by uh, Shelley Moore Capito, a fellow West Virginian, and Republicans will have something to measure up against uh, whatever Manchin puts out and tries to get through in the lame duck. All right. When we come back from extended unemployment benefits to long COVID, everyone has an explanation for what's being dubbed the great resignation. So what's really behind a near record number of job openings? We'll talk to Andy Kessler about what he calls a nation of quitters. Next. Inside your eye, there's an... It has been dubbed the Great Resignation or the Big Quit. The U.S. has a near record 11.2 million job openings and not enough people to fill them, with roughly 3 million fewer Americans working than at the start of the coronavirus pandemic. Some have blamed extended unemployment benefits for the shortage, others the effects of long COVID. So where have all the workers gone? Let's ask Andy Kessler. He writes the Inside View column for the Wall Street Journal and is a former hedge fund manager. Andy Nice to see you. So uh, there you went and called uh, uh, us all of a, a nation of quitters. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, look, you, uh, you talked about uh, student loan forgiveness. Add that to uh, eviction moratoriums and extended unemployment benefits, and, and no one wants to work anymore. And, and uh, my theory is, is that once you get a taste for not working, these people like it. They like it a lot not working. And so... I've labeled them uh, cyber bohemians, cybos, that, that group that's sitting in front of screens all the time rather than working. I mean, who wants to work? Um, you may ask, uh, what are they doing instead of working? 
simple. They used to trade crypto and NFTs until the stimulus checks ran out. Now they're sitting back, relaxing, watching the first of 50 hours of Lord of the Rings on Amazon Prime. They're, um, they're um, uh, playing mindless video games like Fall Guys and even um, ordering uh, cannabis from dispensaries in 19 states, many of whom deliver. How can they get away with this? I mean, where's the money coming from? Yeah, that's I a good question. Where is it's the enabling... money coming from? Mom and dad? Is it's this mom from, and dad? Uh, enabling... <laughs> It's mom and dad. It's enabling parents. So you look it up, and, and uh, baby boomers are sitting on $71 billion in assets that they have to spoil their children. And, um, you know, there's other stats out there that show that 40% of parents with children over 18 are supporting an adult child. It's just, it's happening. The, 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 the uh, baby boomers are almost paying their kids not to work. And if you don't have to work, why work? Well, uh, so you're talking about young men mostly, right? Or, and not even young men. I mean, 20, age 25 to 54, the, the, uh, the, the, the job uh, per, uh, participation yes. has, has fallen off. You describe them as unemployed, perpetually plugged in, dopamine-addled cyber bohemians. Uh, uh, there's a compliment for you. Uh, <laughs> but are these men or, or, or largely, do you think, and a lot of the, and how many of them are, you know, 20s and 30s? Um, I, I would guess it's mostly 20s and 30s. But look, even those that are employed, I, I think they're underemployed. So many of, of the younger generation need a purpose to their jobs, you know, something that's sustainable, equitable, upcycled, cruelty free. And so they won't work for certain companies like Exxon and um, Philip Morris. But even Facebook, they won't work for or Twitter because, hey, they got Trump elected or Google works for the Defense Department. Amazon is destroying the environment. So it's, it's not even the ones that are sitting around all day doing nothing. Even those that are employed are underemployed. You know, now, Andy, some people are going to look at you saying this and me, and they're going to say, you know what, you're, come on, you're a cranky old guy who likes to say, like their grand, your grandparents said, well, things were you know, tougher and better when I was your age. Uh, I mean, what's your response to that? Well, I mean, the, the response is simple. I'm not talking about an entire generation. I'm just talking about the underachievers. And, yes, this has been going on for, for generations. I mean, in the 60s, it was, uh, you know, those in Haight-Ashbury who, uh, you know, tuned in and dropped out and, and, and the like. But it's easier today. One, because we have all these screens. We have all these screens in our pockets, and we're walking around, you know, doing anything except working. And then secondly is that big stash of cash that's going to be transferred from baby boomers to the next generation. That is just too big of an incentive. Now, here's the good news. Inflation is running hot. This is about the only good news with inflation running hot. Eventually, the money's going to run out. And uh, the, this generation... Uh, many of them who are the cyber bohemians are going to eventually have to go back to work. You know, briefly, Andy, uh, uh, there used to be a stigma if you didn't work, uh, particularly if you're able-bodied of working age and you weren't taking care of children. Has that stigma vanished? Um, I'm not so sure about vanished, but it's it's kind of the there's a there's a a, a proudness of underworking. You know, I mean, I, I know examples of highly expensively educated corporate guys and law guys that dropped out and now are 
uh, yoga instructors and ESG advocates. And so, and, you know, hey, those are, that's great at cocktail parties. You know, whoa, I'm so proud of you. You're, you're you know, saving the environment as opposed to doing productive work and, and saving the uh, environment and moving progress along like the rest of us. All right, Andy Ketzer, thanks so much for joining us. We have to take one more break. When we come back, hits and misses of the week. Great feeds deserve. Time now for hits and misses of the week. Kim, first to you. A miss to Al Gore and John Kerry for their hit on World Bank President David Malpass, attacking him as a climate denier and more broadly for failing to turn his bank into an arm of the environmental left. Paul, the World Bank's job is to alleviate poverty, and one of the most effective ways to do that is to give poor countries access to cheap fossil fuels. The the Gores and the Carries of the world could care less as long as they can pat themselves on the back. Forget the word climate denier. These guys are humanity deniers. Wow. Okay, Kyle. I'll give a miss to the Jones Act. Hurricane Ian is the second big storm to hit the U.S. after Hurricane Fiona roared through Puerto Rico. And while that island's power grid was down, a ship full of diesel fuel diverted to Puerto Rico in good faith to offer up its cargo. But the Jones Act says that any ships between U.S. ports have to be built by Americans, crewed by Americans, and owned by Americans. So this diesel sat around in limbo. It's one more example of how the Jones Act is broken central planning protectionism. All right, uh, Dan. There have been serious fears that an asteroid could hurtle through space and slam into Earth as one did millennia ago with the dinosaurs. Well, a hit literally to NASA's dark spacecraft about the size of a golf cart, which hit an asteroid 7 million miles from Earth while going 14,000 miles a second. Uh, go figure. We may not have a chance. Get, we'll have a better chance against the asteroids, I think, than the dinosaurs did when one hit them. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dan. Uh, quite a feat. Quite a feat. All right. Uh, and remember, if you have your own hit or miss, be sure to tweet it to us at JER on FMC. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to my panel and especially to all of you for watching. I'm Paul Gigo. Hope to see you 